Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Book of Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we are starting a journey through the book of Hebrews. I've been preaching for um, 31 years. Never preached through the book of Hebrews. Um, this will be the first time. Uh, and I would dare say that there are a few uh, ministers who do attempt a sermon series through Hebrews. Very difficult reading. And it's uh, a very complicated book. I would say that uh, partnered up with the book of Revelation, it's the two books that, that uh, a lot of people just stay clear of. The only, the only exception to that would be there are some people who only read the book of Revelation and they pinpoint everything they believe on the Revelation. That's not the case with Hebrews. Very few people will camp out in the book of Hebrews. In, in my whole life, I've only met one person who said my favorite book is the book of Hebrews. And really, that's unfortunate because as a result of people staying away from it and neglecting it and ignoring it, we've missed an incredible message that is so relevant to our day that it's not even funny. Uh, I've entitled this series, White Knuckled Faith. When you're holding on to something with your hands really, really tight, I've noticed that your, un- your, your, your knuckles change color. My knuckles, because I stretch the skin when I'm holding on something tight, you can see the bones underneath them. So I, white knuckle faith, when you hold on to something very, very strongly. The writer of Hebrews is trying to get his readers, his hearers, to hold on to their faith. And he's concerned about them because they are, in the words of the old Paul Simon song, they are slip sliding away. The series title is uh, White Knuckle Faith. The title of the message this morning is Slip Sliding Away. We're going to look at chapter 10, beginning with verse 36. Chapter 10, beginning with verse 36. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God... You will receive what he has promised for in just a very little while. Then he quotes scripture. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're biting off more than we can chew this morning. And we're starting a meal that will last through the summer. And every single time we sit at this table, we're going to be biting off more than we can chew. But Lord, will you use us to proclaim the message of this little book, the book of Hebrews, that is so vital to our day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons why I think the book of Hebrews is often neglected is because there's so much mystery about it. 
perhaps more than any other New Testament book, there's more that we don't know than what we do know about this book. For instance, usually whenever you begin studying a Bible book, one of the first things you want to do, I hope you do, is to look at background information. You don't just want to say, well, without looking at background information, I'm just going to dive into the scripture and start reading it. That's, that's what some of us do. That's what I have done. That's not the thing to do. You want to get some background information. Like, who is the author of this book, the human author? We know, because of the fact that the Bible tells us that the scriptures are inspired of God, that God is ultimately, through his Holy Spirit, the, the divine author of scripture. And that's what gives us confidence in the Bible. But there's also a human element. God moved upon human beings to pen his word. Who is the human author? Uh, it is important, I think, to know that if you look at the second gospel that's in our uh, uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and you study about Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, he was in persecution. And if you know that he was, he was suffering persecution, it colors, you, you begin to see some things throughout the gospel of Mark. For instance, Mark is the only one who, in chapter 1, talking about the temptation of Jesus, says that he was out there in the desert with wild animals. And Mark and his colleagues, uh, in the day that he wrote, they were suffering from persecution. They were run from their homes, and they were living out in the fields outside of Rome, along with wild beasts and animals. And those kind of things pop out. When you think about the Apostle Paul, and you see the letters he wrote, you, you know we're, we, we, we're some... Uh, some part familiar with his journeys and so we can tell pretty much where he was and what he was experiencing for instance when he wrote his very last recorded letter second timothy he was in prison and about to die and you can tell it from the things that he says he says i'm i'm poured out like a drink offering i have run my race i have finished my course Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will present to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. You can tell that Paul is nearing his final days. But when you look at the writer, at the letter of Hebrews, the, the letter is anonymous. The writer doesn't tell us who he is. It was originally received into the list of New Testament books in the second and third, in the third century, because it was believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. There are few scholars today who believe that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. And there's good reason. Number one, Paul always told you his name at the very opening of all of his letters. The writer of Hebrews didn't do that. Paul used a certain kind of vocabulary that is totally not used in the letter to the Hebrews. There are things Paul talked about. Uh, constantly crucifixion, resurrection that are not addressed in Hebrews. Instead, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, deals with the exalted priesthood of Jesus, uh, a subject that Paul never even touched. The writer of Hebrews says that they, that he and his readers were third generation Christians. That was not something Paul ever said. In fact, Paul insisted that he received his message firsthand directly from the Lord. And so if Paul wasn't the writer of Hebrews, and most certainly he wasn't, who was? And nobody knows. There was a third century theologian whose name was Origen. Origen was examining the letter to the Hebrews, and he came to this conclusion. He said, uh, concerning who the author is, only God knows. And I think, in all honesty, we'd have to kind of join up on Origen's team. We don't know who the author is. 
We're not exactly sure also who the recipients were, the people to whom he was writing. Where were they? We're not sure. What were they going through exactly? We kind of know, but kind of not. There's not a whole lot that the Bible tells us about them, although in chapter chapter 2, verse 3, the writer does say that they are third-generation Christians. That means that the Lord, first generation, shared with the apostles, second generation, who then shared with some other people, third-generation Christians. And so we know that these people were not, they, they didn't see the Lord when he was here on earth. And instead, they heard from the people who first heard from the Lord. All of a sudden, we're getting grandchildren, Christian grandchildren into the family. They're third generation Christians. From the reading of the book, it's pretty clear that they were familiar with the sacrifices and the rituals of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's also clear that they were fluent in Greek because Hebrews was originally written in Greek. When the writer of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, and there's more Old Testament in the book of Hebrews than any other book in the New Testament. When he quotes it, he quotes not from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, which was original, but from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's interesting. So there's not a whole lot we know about the authors. There's not a great deal we know about the recipients. There's not a whole lot we know about the date. There was a fellow named Clement. Anybody here named Clement? That's what I thought. There was a guy named Clement who lived in 96 A.D. 96 A.D., that's the first century. And he wrote a letter, a long letter to the church at Corinth. And in that letter, he quotes Hebrews. In four different places, he quotes verbatim passages from the letter to the Hebrews. That tells us that the letter of Hebrews was already in existence by by 96 A.D. And in the letter... The writer says that Timothy has just been released from prison. Now, we're not, we can't say for sure that this Timothy is the Timothy that you and I are familiar with, who was a colleague of Paul, but probably he was. The writer alludes to him in a way that makes it sound like he was a very familiar person to the church. And if that's the case, then we're looking at probably somewhere between 60 and 96 AD for the writing of the letter. There was persecution throughout. And during the first century, at least the latter uh, 60 years of the first century, there were three different periods of major persecution. One was in the late 40s A.D. The second one was in the 60s A.D. And the third one and the final one was in the 90s A.D. The persecution in the 90s was probably too late to be attributed to Hebrews. The one in the late 40s is probably too early to be attributed to Hebrews, which means the letter was probably written during the persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero in the 60s A.D. But the persecution was just started. Nobody had died yet. The writer says you've been tortured and persecuted. You've had your homes confiscated from you. But thankfully, no one has lost their lives yet. We know that as the Nero persecution wore on in the 60s, there were people who indeed did lose their lives. Well, where was the letter written? There's a little place back in uh, chapter 13, verse 24, that says, all of those from Italy send you greetings. But what does that mean? We don't know if that means that the letter was being sent to Italy, or if it was being sent from Italy, or if uh, if it was from a writer who was accompanied by some Italians, 
And to whomever they were writing, he said, these Italians with me send your greetings. We don't know. It's a it's an ambiguous statement. So we don't know where it's written. We don't know where it's going. It's kind of frustrating not to know who wrote it. You ever you ever received a letter that was anonymous and you couldn't figure out who wrote it? I mean, if you're like me, probably when I get an anonymous letter, I might kind of glance over it, and then it's file 13 pretty quickly. But this one is an anonymous letter that has some real good content in it. While we don't know the author, and we don't know exactly the recipients, and while we don't know where it was written and to whom it was, to where it was going, and while we, we don't know that much about the date within a series of maybe a decade to four decades, there's one thing that is crystal clear. And, and thankfully, it's the most important thing to remember about it, and it's this. We know the issue that was being dealt with here. And it was the issue of some people who were Christians who are ready to throw in the towel on the Christian faith. I was reading a book by Thomas Long. Dr. Long is the professor of New Testament and homiletics at uh, Candler School of Theology. And he said this about the people who received the letter to the Hebrews. He said this, he says, he says, this congregation is tired and is exhausted. They are tired, tired of serving in the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being a peculiar people, tired of being whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus, he says. Their hands droop, their knees are weak, attendance is down at church, and they're losing their confidence. The the threat to this congregation, he says, is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction. Rather, they do not have any energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here, he says, is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. And then he concludes with this statement. I love this. He says, they are tired of walking the walk, and many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from the faith. That's the issue. Here you have Jewish Christians, Christian people, who are being tempted to walk away from faith. Tempted to, be, to, to walk away. They're fed up with it. This is not an antiquated problem, ladies and gentlemen. This is not an issue only for Those people way back there, way back then, it is an issue for us right here, right now. Let me tell you why I say that. There was a 2009 survey done on religion in America. You can look it up. It's called the American Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the profile of the no religion population in America Americans who claim no religion are fast-growing in America, among adult Americans since 1990, over the past two decades, the percentage of people who claim no religious affiliation has gone from 8.2% in 1990 to 15% in 2008, and it's growing every single year. It has almost doubled in a decade. Now, hear this. Hear me. Hear me. Are you with me? It's the fastest growing segment of people in 
a religious category in America. You say, well, how can there be a religious category if they're non-religious? Non-religious is a religious category. And it's the fastest growing. No other segment, religious segment in America comes close to that kind of growth. Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world, but not in, in America. It's, it's uh, kind of stagnant. Most of the religious growth in the world is in Africa, where the, 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 the Christian population is exploding with growth. Because the people there are so ripe to hear the message. But in America, perhaps, perhaps because of our prosperity, we have become not so open And the thing about this is, this group of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the non-religious, they're, they're, they're people who are not just people who've never had religion. They, they, they have, a good segment of them come from people who used to be in church. Barna Research Group, who is the Gallup people of Christian issues, not long ago published a study that found, hear this, that nearly three out of five young Christians disconnect from the faith after the age of 15, three out of five, you want to put that's 60% of them. Barna says there are six main different reasons why this is happening. One, he says, he says they've asked these young people and they say their churches is, is, is is overprotective. They protect them from anything on the outside. Another reason they say was that the, their experience of Christianity in their church was shallow. No depth. Another one said their churches appear to be way against science. Totally anti-science. Another reason they say is because their churches are too simple or too judgmental when it comes to issues of sexuality. Fifth reason the study gives for an exodus from the churches is that many uh, young adults struggle with the exclusivity of Christianity, they said. And then the last reason was they feel that their church was unfriendly to those who doubt, totally and immediately dismissed if they even as so much as hinted that they had a doubt about anything related to faith. So it's not just people who never grew up with, with uh, faith. And it's, it, it includes people who have grown up with faith. And it's not just lay people in the faith. Get this. In the Christian Post, a Christian online newspaper, news magazine, said this week, in an article this week, 90% of people entering into the ministry are not finishing. 90%. What's going on? What's happening in this country we love? Why is it that people are drifting away? I want to give you some reasons that I think people drift away from the faith that I think the writer of Hebrews also echoes. First of all, I think there are people who drift away from the church because of hypocrisy in the church. Recently, I was uh, trying to witness to a man who was very, very sick. And didn't know how long this, this person would live. But um, I was talking to him. I'd been asked to come speak to him and 
Great guy. Great guy. I mean, would give you the shirt off his back. If you ever, he's the type of person, if there was something you needed, you called him, he'd be there. He'd drop what he was doing to be there. Great guy. Great guy. But every time you talk to him about faith, about the Christian faith, about receiving Christ, he would always jump to the subject of hypocrisy in the church. He said, I know a bunch of people in church. And he said, they, they walk into the church with their Sunday best and their Sunday smiles and, and acting like they're holy on Sunday. And he said, outside that church, they live hellacious lives. I know it. I've seen them. And he said, if that's the Christianity you're talking about, I want nothing of it. Hypocrisy in the church. Amanda and Hillary and I, uh, Five years ago, I think it was, four or five years ago, we took a trip to England to see some uh, friends of ours who lived there. And, of course, being in Europe, we wanted to travel around and see the sights. And, and we toured several uh, churches, even worshipped in Westminster Abbey, that huge, majestic, awesome, wonderful sanctuary there in London where kings and princesses have been married. We were in that humongous majestic sanctuary with a hundred people to worship. Most recent surveys indicate that 15% of people in England attend worship at least once a month in a given month. Used to be one of the most religious nations on earth. Somebody says, well, the problem there is liberalism or the problem there is secularism. And it could be. They may have something to do with it. I'll tell you what it is more than anything, I think. You see, people in England are good in history. In particular, they are good in British history. And they know what the church has been guilty of throughout British history. I mean, it used to be... If you weren't in the Anglican church and you tried to start, for instance, a a church of another denomination, let's say a Baptist church, you'd be put in jail. The first Baptist church on English soil was started by a fellow named Thomas Helwes. He wrote a little uh, essay and he sent it to King James of the King James Version of the Bible, you might remember. And King James promptly put Thomas Helwes in prison where he died in prison 12 years later. You see, the British people remember that. We we were driving by one place, and there was a vacant lot. You could tell the building used to be there. And the person who was driving us stopped, and he said, you know what used to be there? We said, no, no, what? He said, church. I said, wow. Must have dissolved, and they tore that thing down. I said, oh, no, no, no. He said, a group from the United States came over and purchased it and took it apart, disassembled it brick by brick, block by block, carried it over to Colorado, and they erected it there. But nobody would come and worship in it here. Why? I believe it's in part because of the hypocrisy in the church. I will tell you, though, in our defense, and I've wanted to say this to a lot of people, and I I just never had the heart to. Perhaps I should be bold enough to say this. But people who use the hypocrisy in the church as a reason for not coming to church or as a reason for not accepting Christ, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. Every pulpit in America is full of someone, is, is, is filled by someone, including this one, who at times has been hypocritical. I think we need to own up to that. And if someone who doesn't like that joins the church, we've just got one more hypocrite in the church membership. That's all. Because everybody has periods of hypocrisy. Because that's what we are. 
We are failures as human beings. That is the doctrine of original sin. We're born with a leaning towards sin. We're, we're born and within just a, a short a matter, a matter of time, if we can get into sin, we will. Some people drift because of hypocrisy. Some people drift because of insufficient equipping. I'm convinced that a lot of the college students who get in college and then break away from faith or break away from the church, they do so because the church has ill-equipped them for their future. We stick with simple stories, and, and, and that's okay. That has its place, but we never want to address deep questions. I remember one time several years ago, I was struggling with a question about what God decided to do before he ever created anything. What did he decide to do? Why did he create Satan? Why did he create Lucifer who became Satan? And so I was talking with a guy one day and I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm really struggling several years ago, really struggling with, with, with what God decided to do and why he decided to allow into existence some of the things he allowed into existence. You know what? You know, the answer I got from the person on the other side of the line who was 40 years my senior He said, you don't want to go there. You just need to let that alone, Jim. Now, I understood what he was saying. That's dangerous water. It is. It's murky. It has flesh-eating bacteria in it. Yes, sir. But let me tell you, the fact that we have stayed away from these difficult questions has left our young people and our older people illiterate. When we get out from under mom and dad's roof and out into the real world where people really are addressing these questions, and unfortunately, they tend to know more about some things than those of us who've been raised in the church do. I teach Old Testament and New Testament classes at Bruton Parker College. I have since 2002. And in every single class, there are, there are people in that class who've been raised in church and never address some of the questions that we raise in that college class. Because they were too problematic. Here's a quote for you. I'll let you... I, I, who said this? Students who profess faith... Christian faith are dropping out of the church and leaving the faith at a staggering rate when they go to college. Suffice it to say there's a growing need to help Christian students continue believing and practicing the faith as they become adults. The author says much of the teaching that students receive at church is, is slanted too far in one of two directions. It's either too practical or it is too theological. And he says we need to find a synthesis that brings faith to life in the real world in a meaningful way. He says, I wrote this book, it's from a book, I wrote this book to help students connect the dots between the theological and the practical. Making this connection between head and hands is essential, he says, if students are to continue believing and practicing the faith as they become adults. You know who wrote that? It's in a book. Our new youth minister, Trevor Hamaker. He's written a book called Varsity Faith. He'll be here June 15th. Some people drift away from Christianity because it's too easy. I mean, think about it. Salvation is a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. You don't have to obey enough commandments to get it. You don't have to get enough Sunday school pens to get it. You don't have to read through the Bible three times every week to get it. It's free. It's a gift. No strings attached. And here we are in a culture that says you get what you pay for. You earn what you receive. You reap what you sow. 
If you're going to get a paycheck here, you're going to have to earn it the old-fashioned way. And for those of us in that kind of a culture, it's difficult to embrace this idea of something free. For after all, how many of you heard this? Boy, there's nothing free in this world. For some, it's too easy. I think that some of the folks here in Hebrews, they, they, they came to the conclusion that Christianity was too easy. On the other hand, there are those for whom Christianity is too hard. In John chapter 7, verse 53, Jesus was saying some really tough stuff. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's pretty gross stuff. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept that? Verse 61, still in John 6, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And verse 66, from this time on, hear this, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You see, some people drift away from the faith because they find it too easy to be true. Some people drift away from the faith because this is hard. It is hard. It's impossible. That's why it takes grace to do it. Some people drift away from the faith because of persecution. The people who received this letter to the Hebrews, they were being persecuted. They were being tortured. They had not died yet, although some of them would later on. But some of them had lost their homes. Some of them had lost their businesses. And, and they were saying, you know, all I've got to do... Even if I don't do it in my heart, all I have to do is verbally renounce Christianity and I can live. I can have my house back and my business back. That's pretty tempting, folks. If you had a son and a daughter, a son or a daughter, son and daughter-in-law or daughter and son-in-law, and they were over in Iran and they were Christians And they were arrested. You know, there are people in Iran who are Christians who've been arrested solely because of their Christian faith. There's a guy over there in prison right now. He's been in prison for a better part of a decade. And all he has to do is just say, I renounce Christianity without even doing so in his heart. And they would release him and he'd see his wife and children whom he has not seen in almost a decade. If that was your child, what would you recommend they do? Ooh. That's a tough question. Some of these people were drifting away from the faith because of persecution. Number six, some people drift away from the faith because of disappointment. Somebody has disappointed them. Somebody said something or somebody did something or somebody uh, made some sort of derogatory remark, not thinking. And, And it hurt somebody's feelings. And so they said, hey, I'm getting out of here. Listen, folks, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Billy and Ruth Graham. If you get close enough to them for a long enough period of time and you analyze their lives close enough, there will be something about them that will disappoint you. Expect it. You know, sometimes I long to be back in that first century. Here the Hebrews are. I don't know exactly where they were, but more than likely they were the only church in town. And so when people got mad, 
They might leave and not go to church. They could leave and start their own church, but there'd be too, it'd be too small a group to really do it. Here in Georgia, we've got churches on every street corner and so on. If I don't like what's going on, I'm heading down the curb here. These people were drifting away because somebody disappointed them. You will disappoint somebody. You will. I will. We will. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews says that some people drifted away because they, of unbelief. They weren't believers to begin with. They didn't have true salvation to begin with. The writer of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 2, had this in mind in verse 18 when he said these words. He said, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them really belonged to us. What is he saying there? He's saying they, these, these folks drifted away because they really weren't saved to begin with. He's talking about the recipients there in his church. Now, let me just uh, finish up right here by saying this. The writer of Hebrews does not lay blame, and he doesn't go into the blame game. Rather, he puts, he, he puts the responsibility for what's going on in that church squarely on two different sets of shoulders. The first one is the, are the shoulders of the church. As the speaking representative of the church, he takes seriously the church's responsibility to reach out to those who struggle enough that they are potentially drifting away from the faith and away from the church. It's the church's responsibility. It's yours, mine, ours. But second, and perhaps most important, he places responsibility squarely on the shoulders of those who are tempted to drift. Because he knows, hear this, he knows that when you and I stand before God and God asks us the tough questions, it's not going to hold water with God for Jimmy Orr to say, well, you know, God, I know I was, I was strong in the faith for a little while, but I, I just kind of drifted away because so-and-so said something I didn't like or so-and-so. He says, don't go blaming somebody else. What about you? He's going to point right to me. A person who doesn't receive Christ because of hypocrisy in the church or because they don't like something that a a major TV evangelist did that disappointed them or somebody who was in church said something that disappointed them or did something that offended them and they stand before God without having received Christ. Do you really think that it's going to hold water for that person to say, well, the reason I didn't accept you, Lord, is because of. And God's going to say, no, (laughs) no. I'm not buying that, my friend. We'll be forced to answer for ourselves. And so today, the invitation is first for those who don't know Christ. You can come here today and give your life to Christ. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. Trust him for your eternal life. The invitation is for those of us who are saved, but we're under the temptation to drift away.
I've been there. Perhaps you've been there. God is asking for us to rededicate our lives to what we will never on this side of heaven fully understand. This invitation is also to those who don't have a church home. You're saved, don't have a church home. We'd love to have you as part of our church family. What will you do?